as we celebrate uh, the act of God moving right now and also move into uh, the time of the message. Uh, Gracious Heavenly God, uh, thank you again for showing us uh, your grace and your love in a new and fresh way by by reaching to somebody, Lord, who cannot uh, respond yet on his own. Uh, In in some way, in some mysterious way, Lord, we want to acknowledge that we're in the same boat, we're in the same place uh, with our spiritually uh, dead hearts uh, and you breathing that first word, speaking that first word into our hearts to get them beating uh, in sync with you. Thank you for that, Lord. Uh, God, as we open up your word, we ask that you show us in a new and a fresh way uh, of what that truth is that we heard earlier, that while we were still sinners, you died for us, is that you loved us while we were stuck in sin ourselves. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, so I uh, just want to say welcome again to guests. If, if you are a guest, um, there's something I'd love for, uh, for you to know ab- about us is that there's something around here that we, we stress a lot of times. It's a value of ours, and it has been for quite some time. It's just this experience of, of hospitality that we hope that you picked up on uh, in your experience so far. It, it comes through a number of different ways. Um, we try to stress hospitality with, uh, with our host or greeting team when you came in. Maybe that just looks like a, like a friendly smile. It comes through in, in, in other ways, like cookies and bagels and, and hot coffee waiting for you when you get here. If my, yeah, if my kids didn't eat all of them beforehand. But uh, it, it comes through with maybe somebody from the greeting team uh, escorting your family, your kids, back into the children's rooms, wherever they might be around the building, to, just to make sure that that transition happens as smoothly as possible so that you can be in a place to receive the, whatever word uh, God might be sharing with you this morning. Um, it just recently, we started this next chapter deal where, where we talk about uh, renovating the other side of the building to, to make this a more hospitable environment so it doesn't get so clogged up and, and, and congested. I hope that you can just see that the value here is hospitality at Encounter through and through, not just because we want to be hospitable people, but because that our, we believe our God is a hospitable God, is a God who cares that you're here. More importantly, he cares about whether or not you're in a, in a relationship with him. And so picking on that theme of, uh, of hospitality, and even if you think of yourself like, I don't think I'm necessarily that hospitable of a person, I want to say, you probably are, you just may not realize it yet. Because even if you don't consider yourself a very hospitable person, when you invite somebody over to your house, there, there's like a, a mental script that, that like flows kind of uh, unspokenly, almost, almost naturally exudes out of you, right? Or you invite somebody over, 6.30, come on over. At 6.30, you hear a knock at the door. And you go over and you open the door and say, Hey, John, welcome. Come on in. The script has already started, right? Hey, can I take your coat? Hang it up. Come on in to the living room over here. Have a seat. Uh, Can I get you something to eat, something to drink, a cup of coffee? Let me me turn off the TV so so you know that you're welcome here, right? It's it's all part of the script that unfolds without really even thinking about it. For the purposes this morning, to kind of set up the Bible passage we're going to look into, just want you to imagine for a minute, you go over to somebody's house, accepting their invitation, and none of these things happen. You knock on the door, and there's no answer. You can, like, peer in the windows, check your clock, you know, it's the right time. People are moving around inside. You can see them. You can hear conversation. Nobody comes to the door. Eventually, it gets cold enough outside that you just let yourself in. 
Nobody acknowledges your presence. There's no handshake. There's no great to see you. How are you? There's no come on in. You find your way to the living room and sit down on the couch. Nobody offers you a cup of coffee or something to eat or drink. They don't even shut off the TV. It's like they don't even acknowledge your presence here. I just, like, what's unfolding in your mind at that point? <laughs> Maybe you've been there, right, to somebody who's, who's forgotten a few of these things, and it just, it feels so incredibly awkward. But what would happen if somebody if forgot or, or neglected, like, all of these things? And you're sitting there, the TV's still blaring, nobody has realized or, or paid any attention that, that you're here accepting their invitation to be here. And I just want to suggest that maybe something that starts in your mind is like, am I being punked right now? I mean, is this some sort of like weird joke? I mean, how insulting is it to, to a guest that they don't even turn off the TV when you accept their dinner invitation? What is going on here? That's the question that I hope to answer this morning as we, uh, as we journey through Luke chapter 7 together. Because Jesus accepts a dinner invitation to a Pharisee's house named Simon. Just want to make a note. It's not going to be the same Simon that's, uh, that's going to later become one of Jesus' disciples. It's a different person. It's a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus over to his house. And all of these elements are missing. And we want to ask the question together, like, why is, this guy supposed, why is this guy insulting Jesus so deeply? Why did he invite him here, what it looks like, for the sole purpose of humiliating him in front of the other dinner guests? And if it wasn't for one courageous woman, it would have worked. If it wasn't for one woman who was on the margins, standing against the wall in the back of the room, who... who, who chimes in to the scene that's unfolding in front of her, the plan of humiliating Jesus would have happened flawlessly. Except this courageous woman stepped in, redeemed the entire situation, the entire dinner party, including its host, and glorified God, friends, in a way that I think few people possibly could. We're going to continue our series this morning called Behind the Veil. It's stories of of Jesus and women. And I got to say, this is, I think, the fourth uh, installment of this series. And and so far, as we've heard of all of these women that Jesus interacted with, none of them have gotten names yet. I mean, nobody has even mentioned, oh, by the way, you know, her name was Mary or her name was... No, none of these women, get. they just remain unnamed. But what they teach us, what they show us, these profound truths in the Bible, I think are, I think are unforgettable. And Luke thinks so too, because he made sure to write them down. Uh, let's go in that passage um, here this morning. It comes from Luke chapter 7. We've got the, the passage. It's a long one. It's on the front of the flow sheets that Andrea mentioned earlier. And it's also on the screen uh, here behind me. Luke chapter 7 starts off. and We'll just do the first few verses here where it says, uh, One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house. That's Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. In that day and age, you don't uh, sit at tables. You sort of uh, lay down on your side at a table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, it's almost a universal uh, Bible euphemism that she was a prostitute. The Bible just uses the phrase, she led a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, 
as she stood behind him at his feet, remember, he's laying down, she's standing behind him, kind of behind his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and she, uh, then she wiped them with her hair, kissing them and pouring perfume on them. I just like pause it for a second there. What did we say last week when we looked at Jesus and the, and the woman who was caught in adultery, you know, and Jesus like bends down and he starts like writing in the sand and it doesn't tell us what he wrote, just that he wrote a couple of different times. We said last week, hey, if you find something in the Bible, if you come across something that's just weird, it just doesn't seem to really make any sense. It doesn't like fit in with the rest or it's a bizarre little detail. Chances are the author of that story, in that case, John last week, in this case, Luke, he thinks it's important you know, the, the author of that story thinks that, like, this is something worth mentioning, and everybody who commissioned these Bible passages from that point out to be, to be written down at their own personal expense, they thought that it was important enough to be captured and recaptured in the retelling of this story. So we've got this, like, bizarre scene of this woman weeping, and, and she undoes her hair, uncovers it, remember, behind the veil, that's why it's, it's punny, um, and and she dries his feet and, and puts perfume on there. And it's just like there's so much there that's just weird to us now. But before we get to any of that craziness, I, I just want to like back up and say, okay, but there's one additional factor is what were the three of them doing at a dinner party to begin with? I mean, the way that Luke starts this off, it almost seems like a bad joke, right? Like Jesus, a Pharisee, and a prostitute walk into a dinner party together. <laughs> It's like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Maybe they knew something that we didn't. Um, I think she can be explained a little more easily from the time and, and from the culture about what she's doing there. You see, when religious people in that time got together, particularly Jewish religious people, especially rabbis, when they had dinner parties together, they would leave the doors, if there were doors on the, on the building, they would leave those doors open so that anybody who was walking by could come on in. It's a strange and bizarre practice, but what the religious leaders, like uh, rabbis like Jesus, wanted to demonstrate that anybody who was in need, anybody who who was, who was broken, anybody who was uh, poor, anybody who was a social outcast could come on into the room and, and stand in the back of the room, maybe against the wall or, or maybe crouch against the wall if they weren't able to stand and just sort of remain there on the margins. And, and the dinner guests would have their meal and then when they'd finish, all of the leftovers of that meal would be distributed among the, the social outcast and, and poor people that were gathered on the outside. It was a way for uh, rabbis in that time to be able to demonstrate to their dinner guests just how generous and just how compassionate they were, that they were, that they were willing to allow these people, yes, these people, to come into their homes and, and to sort of remain on the margin, on the fringe, while they had their, their dinner together. Jesus being a rabbi and the Pharisee being a, uh, uh, being a religious leader, this was not uncommon for them to leave the doors open. So it wouldn't have been necessarily too strange for this woman who led a sinful life, wink, who came in and, and would stand uh, in the back. That wasn't what was unusual. What I think to the readers of the story was a little more unusual is Jesus and the rabbi. Because maybe you've been following this series or maybe you've been to church once or twice before and you already recognize, it seems like Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and the religious leaders seem to butt heads a lot. 
Very, very true. So you might ask like a good question, why is it that the Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house? The answer is that this is Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 4, only three chapters uh, earlier, Jesus had just proclaimed to uh, the people around, proclaimed to a small village that he is himself a prophet sent by God. And a prophet, anytime somebody makes the claim that, uh, that he's a, a prophet sent by God, there was this, uh, there was the, this command that, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would go and they would, and they would investigate and they would check this out and they would see whether or not this person was actually a, a prophet sent by God. So this Pharisee named Simon hears Jesus claim that he's a prophet sent by God three chapters earlier, and it wouldn't be unusual for him to invite Jesus, the, the would-be prophet, over to investigate whether or not he is or isn't a prophet. Except he doesn't actually care about those things. Except for he's already got his plan in the works. Because he knows what Jesus has been teaching he knows, like you could say, the theology that Jesus comes for. He knows that Jesus is a, is a rabbi, is a prophet, who's been telling everybody those words that Pastor Brian shared earlier, that, that, that God loves broken, sinful people. And so, the, so the, the Pharisee is looking at Jesus and going, dude, you've got it all mixed up. Except for at this time, it's only Luke chapter 7. We're kind of uh, early on in the story. Jesus is still a young man. He's about 30 years old. Maybe the Pharisee thinks, maybe he could be molded. Obviously, there's a few things that he doesn't quite get about how God works. God doesn't love sinners. God loves good people. God loves righteous people. So I just have to straighten him out a little bit before he goes and tells people he's a prophet. So I'm going to invite Jesus over to my house, and I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to show him a thing or two about how this works. And as he does, part of the lesson involves him basically outright insulting Jesus, humiliating him, in fact. Not so much of what he says or does, which is going to be important for the next part. It's through everything that he doesn't do. Remember those social conventions I mentioned earlier. Hi, John. Welcome. Glad you're here. Let me take your coat. Here's the couch. Let me go get you a cup of coffee. Let me turn off the TV so you know that you're welcome here. All of those things Simon the Pharisee neglects. Now he gets to it later on and Jesus just calls them out one after another and say, all of these things that you're supposed to do, you didn't do. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to point out what was supposed to happen. When Jesus comes as the guest, as the invited guest, remember, for dinner, Simon the Pharisee was supposed to welcome him at the door with a kiss to make sure that he knows he's welcome in this place. He invites him into his house. Jesus would have a seat on a stool, not laying down for, for dinner yet, but Jesus would sit on a stool. One of the household servants would come around and would wash off the stuff from Jesus' feet. You've been to Mackinac Island, you know, like animals in the street? Okay, uh, they wore sandals. So the, one of the servants would wash that stuff off from the feet. Somebody else would, would come around with a towel and, uh, and dry off the, the watery stuff that, that's kind of on his feet and clean them up a little. Uh, somebody would come along with, uh, with some, a bowl of water and some olive oil. Olive oil was like, uh, was like soap. 
in the first century. And in some places, it's still used as soap today. And Jesus would be invited to wash his hands, to make them clean, maybe wash his head, especially if he was traveling a little bit. It's kind of like, uh, like, a, like a quick little bath, um, you know, before getting on with the dinner. Clean up a little bit. And then Jesus would be invited over into the, into the, uh, the dining area, or maybe it would happen while they're on the stools, and they would all say a prayer together, or the host would lead, and then, and then Jesus would, would lie down, would recline, and they would have their, their dinner together. Now, this is what was supposed to happen. And they held these things in such high regard that there was one ancient Jewish writing that was around the same time from the, from the Mishnah, it is that when, uh, it, it, he, who wrote that if there was not olive oil to wash hands, the prayer could not be said. Because as the writing goes, is that just as unclean people weren't fit for temple services, weren't fit for temple service, so too were unclean hands unfit to pray to God. Like that's how seriously they held these things. But, but again, all of them were withheld, making an incredibly tense and incredibly awkward situation. Jesus, though, being a rabbi would have been expected that, to, that the host would pull out all of the stops and would find new and creative ways to, to honor the, the rabbi guest coming to his house. But instead, he insults him. Instead, he withholds all of them, making the shame, making the embarrassment just that much heavier, particularly in a shame and honor-based culture. Jesus had every right And in a lot of ways, it would have just been expected that he would throw up his hands and say, is this how you treat a rabbi? And he would be expected to walk out. I'm not an honored guest here. Instead, Luke tells us that Jesus just walked in. You're not going to do the thing. Okay. And And he reclines at the table. It blows their mind that he doesn't leave, first of all. that Does he not, like, get the message that we're trying to send him? And in addition, Jesus ups the ante because the oldest guests were supposed to be seated first. And there's almost no way that Jesus, at a young age of, like, 30, would have been the first one, or, sorry, would have been the oldest one to take his seat first. Jesus wants to say, I get it. I'll bite. Now we get to the woman who stood, uh, verse 38, as uh, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She's standing against the wall. She's on the margins. She's the sinful woman, remember. She's watching this unfold. But she's not standing empty-handed. She's got an alabaster jar of perfume. I think she heard Jesus' message already. Nearly positive of it. I think she knows that he's preaching this message. God loves sinners. He cares about even you. Even though you're known only as the sinful woman, God loves you. And I think something happened in her heart that just changed her. And so she comes forward with a jar of perfume And the plan is that when they wash his feet and give him soap to wash his hands and his face, she's going to come forward and do a little special honoring of her own to say, I have this expensive perfume. Let Let me just scent your feet and your hands and your head. Let that just be enough. And then step back. That's all she wants. She gets there and all of these things are withheld. 
when she starts to see that, the, that Jesus was, was invited here just so that he could be humiliated, just so that he could be insulted, it, it breaks her heart so much that she starts to weep. She starts to cry on his behalf. And she's wondering, what do I do? Like, what's my role in this? I'm just, I'm a broken person on the margins. Like, what could I possibly do with this perfume? I don't have water. I don't have a towel. And there's no way that they're going to give me water or a towel because they've deliberately withheld it. They've moved it out of the room to make sure that, that Jesus wouldn't, like, do this on his own or something like that. And as the tears roll down her face, she realizes, I do have water. And she uses those tears to take a step forward and to wash the closest part of him that's by her. It would have been too much, probably, to, to climb on the couch in between Jesus and, and the table to wash his hands or his head. It would have been too much to, to kiss him on the face like the, the host should have done when he came in. But, but no, no, to take his feet, the defiled feet, the feet that all through the Old Testament are, are referenced negatively more often than not. I, when God says that in Psalm 110, I think it is, I'll make your enemies your, under your, your footstool because like footstool is the worst possible insult, right? Because feet. And she takes his feet and says, surely they won't care. Nobody would object if I, if I just clean his feet with my tears. I sent his feet with the perfume afterwards. And, and what, what was probably too much for the host, Simon the Pharisee, to, to take was that she uncovers her hair and dries them with that, with her hair. I said it's almost too much for the host to take because women never uncovered their hair in public to a stranger. In fact, some women, some really pious women, didn't even uncover their hair in their own houses to their husband. They just kept it in all the time. And in some cultures, this is still true to this day. And in that time, it was expected that, that exposing your hair was, was more, like, more or less like undressing in public. You just don't do it. In the Old Testament, there's references about giving somebody, a woman, a, a certificate of divorce, like you're done with her. And you could do that for a lot of different reasons in the Old Testament, but all the time, whenever you would do that, you'd have to pay a, a, a kitav, a, a financial settlement, in order to pay her off when you divorce her. One of the reasons um, that you wouldn't have to give her a financial settlement afterwards was if she uncovered her hair to another man. Yet that's exactly what is happening to Jesus. I think something happened in her heart. We mentioned it earlier. I think what happened was that she heard this message that God loves you. And she was so changed that she brought a gift to Jesus. The hair exposed was, was reminiscent of a couple on their wedding night. It's just this pledging, undying loyalty to this person. Love, change, Gift to Jesus. This violated every instinct of Simon the Pharisee. Because from a very young age, he grew up learning, knowing, 
God doesn't love sinners. God loves good people. God loves righteous people. If you sin, if you sin, you first clean up, you first change. And you take a gift that, that represents that change. Maybe it's an animal sacrifice. Maybe it's a financial sacrifice. And you take it to the temple and you offer it to God. And a priest in that temple may or may not say that that gift was enough and that God loves you. Simon knows from growing up everything that he's ever heard. First you change. Then you give. Then you may be loved. Change, gift, love. Jesus takes the last one, love, to this woman. And her experience is a different reality. Love, change, gift. On top of that, on top of that, I don't want us to miss this other truth. Simon, the Pharisee, knew where you go with your gift of, of well, he saw it more as a purchase of, of love, or, but, but she saw it as more of a gratitude. Where you go, Simon knew the most appropriate place to go to get forgiveness would be the temple, where God is dwelling, where God lived. That's where you go. Now he's seeing her come to Jesus, a man, a rabbi, and pledge undying loyalty to him, not at the temple. You got it backwards. You don't know anything about how God works. I think the truth that she has for us this morning is that she knows better about how God works and who God is than what anybody outside of Jesus then knew and what a lot of us know today. Is that as one commentator wrote about this passage, she almost instinctively recognized what he calls the, the Shekinah glory, we mentioned that, with the, God's presence, the cloud, the fog, God's Shekinah glory falling on, and resting on this rabbi, Jesus Christ, so heavily that to her, bringing her gift of gratitude to Jesus was just the same as bringing it to God in the temple. Because this man represented God on earth. The Pharisee wouldn't have it. A woman from the margins coming, teaching who this person is. He says in verse, uh, verse 39, when the Pharisee had, who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, remember he's still kind of going through with the, uh, with, with the examination, he would know who is touching him and, and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. We know what he means by that. Jesus answered him in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Sort of like getting called into the principal's office, right? Um, Tell me, he said, verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is like a a day's wage. So one owed him a lot and, and the other one a little. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he, he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, like, grudgingly, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. That's a very rabbi thing to say. It's, it's the word that was used when somebody answered one of the questions. Well, you have judged correctly, Jesus says, putting himself in the place of the teacher. 
rather than the, the one being insulted or humiliated here. The, the, the parable, the short parable that I, we can't miss is, is chosen so cleverly, I think, because in, in the Old Testament, there's two main words to use to describe sin. Um, either there was trespassing, which, you know, some versions of the Lord's Prayer say, uh, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us for going where we shouldn't, Forget, uh, forgive us for doing something where we shouldn't. The other word in the Old Testament to describe sin was, was debts, and God is the, the holder of those debts. So, um, debts would be not doing something, not paying something that you should have paid, right? Uh, not doing something that you should versus doing something that you shouldn't, right? It's just, I mean, we have to like realize the difference here. Uh, Jesus chooses to tell a parable about debts, about, hey, 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 not doing something that you should have done. Simon, I know we're using a lot of big words here, buddy, but is there something maybe in your recent past that maybe you should have done, but you didn't? Probably one or two things. Verse 44, then he turned to the woman. I love this. He's looking at the woman and he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She, perf- she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins, her many debts have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been uh, forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests, first time we hear from them, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You'd think that she just cleared that up. But Jesus said to the woman, your faith has, healed, has saved you. Go in peace. Right? Um, Simon, let me tell you this parable about debts. Make sure we're all on the same page here. Maybe there was something that maybe you, you should have done, but you didn't do. Right? All of this whole long list of things, Simon, you have dug yourself into such a big hole. You think she's a sinner? You think she's on the margin? Dude, you're right there with her. The only difference between the two of you is she gets it. She realizes it. Redemption in the story. You know, if it weren't for her, Jesus would have been humiliated. He would have been insulted. It would have been the end, the end of the story. Well, that's it. They got the better of him. And he, mind you, would be, have dug himself into an even deeper hole because of all the debts, all the things he should have done and didn't do for Jesus, the Messiah who was in, that, in his home that day. But someone, a woman from the margins, steps in and does what he was supposed to do all along. Redemption came from the margins. God looked at her and said, I'm not done with you yet. You may have been beaten up. You may have had too much life in your years already. You may be a sinful woman and everything that comes with that. You may be lower than the bottom person in society. You may be on the margins. But I'm not done with you yet. 
And you're going to redeem Simon's house by doing something that he should have done all along. In addition, the extra honor that a rabbi deserved of perfume. Redemption came from the margins. Redemption has a way of coming from the margins. God has a a way of, of using the little people, whether it be people like her standing in the back of the room, or or whether God uses people like Simon who think that they have it all together, who realize in one short parable there is a massive truckload of things that I should have done that I I didn't do all along. And so now, too, I am on the margins. And I want to say to Simon, along with the woman, God isn't done with you if you're on the margins. Redemption comes from the margins. Redemption comes from the margins. It's a story that I heard not too long ago. Um, There's a little boy, uh, nine years old. I got a a picture of him in a minute here on the screen. uh, His name is Cain. And uh, and Cain was this little kid who worked in a... uh, who worked in his dad's auto parts shop in East L.A. Um, I say worked because he was, he was busy. His dad was working. He was just sort of assigned to be there all summer long. And the kid loved cutting things out of boxes. It's like the one commodity that the parts store had just a lot of for him to play with is, is empty cardboard boxes. And so he started off making a couple of, uh, a couple of arcade games like he likes to do. And, and like little like basketball kind of going into the hoop. You know, he had a prizes. And then he made a little cardboard cash register and then he made a few more games and then he had like nearly a hundred games arcade games all made out of cardboard made by the end of the summer and it was just like this crazy thing only only his dad's auto parts shop in east la did almost all of their business over ebay (laughs) so nobody ever came in to play to play kane's arcade all summer long except for one guy is a who came in because he needed a door handle for his 1996 Toyota Corolla. And he, he comes into the shop to pick it up. And he sees Kane's arcade. And Kane says, you know, do you want to play? Well, you know, how do you, how do you play? Well, it's $1 for two games. It's, it's $2 for a fun pass. He goes, what's a fun pass? This is 500 plays, any game you want. It's like, Spring for the fun pass. You know, and after hearing the story about, from his dad about how he's been working on this thing all summer long, and he's the first and probably the only customer because summer is just about done. Kane, uh, Kane uh, or the Nervin, the, the guy who came, says, you know what, let me go get my camera. He's an amateur filmmaker. And so he, he comes back and he just wants to film like Kane's arcade to, to show uh, a few of his friends like, like what this kid has been up to. And then he hears a little bit more of the story. He hears kind of the background. He hears the story of the nine-year-old on the margins. And he goes, I think I can help this kid out. And so he organizes a flash mob, right? To, to everybody descends on this place at the same time, you know, at the same place. They get it all lined up. So without Kane knowing it, all of a sudden he's got a line of customers on the last day of summer that stretches all the way around the block. Everybody wants to play it at Kane's Arcade. The filmmaker uh, uploads it to YouTube and it has uh, a million hits in the first day as everybody is sharing it. Now, the, the, the guy had this lofty goal of raising like $25,000 for, for a college scholarship fund for, for Kane. And they raised $60,000 again in the first day. And it expands out from there. 
And, and the goal of the nonprofit that they started together after that is taking, uh, is taking kids from the margins, from the, from the cities, from, from kids who wouldn't have a, an exposure otherwise, and, and teaching them about the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, the, the STEM fields. And, and now they, they introduce uh, and create these experiences to introduce these kids to the STEM fields. Um, every year across the globe, 100,000 students engaged. The scholarship fund just went, out, went through the roof. And I just, I just want to share this with you because redemption comes from the margins. Redemption comes from the nine-year-olds. Redemption comes from the sinful woman standing against the wall. Redemption comes from the Pharisee who realizes maybe for the first time in his life that he too is on the margins. And I just want to say, God wasn't done with Cain. God wasn't done with the woman. God wasn't done with the Pharisees. And God's not done with you either. Because no matter where you came from, whether you're here and you're saying it's because I'm divorced, it's because I'm married, it's because I'm single, I just want to say God isn't done from you, with you yet. Whatever margin you're feeling in life, maybe you've gone to church your whole life and like Simon, you think, like, I got it all, I know all the stories. Redemption comes from the margin and God isn't done with you yet. Maybe like the woman, you're here for the first time and honestly, the only reason why you came to church is because your friend won't stop bugging you about it. God isn't done with you yet. And he's not going to be done until everybody knows who he is and what he did. Let's join Jesus in that mission. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly God, you, you've tasked us with the mission of going to the margins, whether it be in our families, in our neighborhoods, or even in our own hearts, and redeeming this creation of yours, and pointing the people that you have made and you have died for, and in showing them, Lord, that you love them even to the point of death. God, let us look at the cross and be moved and be inspired to tell people about your love and grace. It's in your name. Amen.